Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If I sound a little sick this morning, it is, I am. But listen, I took a COVID test, okay? So I do not have COVID. It was a clear negative. Um, there are other things going around still these days, right? <clears throat> Family meeting coming up. Uh, that's basically the team in the locker room to just uh, talk a little further about who we are as a church, uh, where we're going, gives you space too, to ask questions that you might have. Um, just set the date for February 2. Steve will tell you more about it next week. Um, but those are important times as well, especially in light of the fact that uh, one of the things that we say around here a lot is that in light of the last two years, we really feel like we're replanting crossroads um, just with uh, a lot of the new people that have come in and, and where we are as a church. And as a church plant, that's always fun for us to think about uh, planting something or replanting. And, and so we're in this season, and so I think family meeting, too, becomes especially important in light of that. Okay, we uh, started our journey in Mark's gospel uh, at the beginning of this year. We finished chapter 1, and if you, you look at verses 38 and 39, where Jesus said, says to his disciples, Let us go somewhere to nearby villages so I can preach there. That is why I have come to the world. And in verse 39, it says, so he traveled throughout Galilee. Wow, that's a huge region uh, with many villages. And it says he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Uh, And so Jesus has completed this major tour. um, And and think about that message and, and what it is that the kingdom of heaven is here. That God's king has finally arrived. And then he concludes that message with repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Because the gospel is not just something that is to be heard. The gospel is something we see. The kingdom of heaven is something that we witness. The kingdom of heaven is is signs and wonders. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Winter is now starting to thaw. Spring is in the air. God's king has arrived. And the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. That's what we're reading about in Mark chapter 1. And again, I really want to stress this. The kingdom of heaven is more than a sermon. It's it's more than a message. It's, It's this new reality. It's the dawning of this new age where this king and this kingdom have come to repair, to restore, to reconcile. And all of this begins with us. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And that old that that Paul is talking about is the old age. (laughs) We're not living in the old age anymore. The new age of Christ and his kingdom has come. I hope this isn't insensitive when I say the kingdom of heaven is like a virus. The good kind. It's not just something that's taught. It's something that has to be caught. 
you catch it. And that's why some of you, uh, I don't even know who you are, but you've been coming to church your whole life. You've been hearing sermon after sermon after sermon, but your life isn't changed. It's because the kingdom of heaven is not just something that's taught. It's something that is caught. And the way that you catch this kingdom uh, is, this is why Jesus says repent. It's when you turn from yourself, you turn from living for yourself, you turn from the world and the false gospels of this world, and you turn with all your heart to Christ, and you bow your life to him, you submit to him, you follow him, you go his way, you walk his path, you do that with your whole heart, and the kingdom of heaven will break out. So here's our text today. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus had again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And I love this. It says, and he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing to him a paralytic man carried by four of his friends. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Now some of the rabbis and Torah teachers sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's precisely the point. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking such things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say to him, rise up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know. And here Jesus takes the highest messianic title. Uh, that that he can claim for himself, the Son of Man. It's that Daniel 7 mysterious figure that is knighted by God himself to have authority over the universe, over all things, forever and ever. Jesus looks at them and says, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to even forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is God's word. You could be seated. So verse one begins with just this interesting clause. It says, Jesus comes home. And that's interesting. He, he's not in Nazareth now. He's in Capernaum. And, and the commentators that I trust uh, say this is probably Peter's house that, that Jesus is coming to. In fact, N.T. Wright even suggests that Peter's house has now become Jesus' home. And this makes tons of sense because when you piece this together with Matthew 9 verse 1... Uh, There, it actually calls Capernaum Jesus' hometown. 
So at some point early on in Jesus' ministry, he leaves his hometown, Nazareth, and he makes Capernaum his home base. And now we come to this part in the narrative where where it's time for Jesus to finally crash. And here's another crowd stalking him. And I love this. Verse 2 says he gets up and he preaches the word to them. And Mark now zeroes in on a paralyzed man. And just from the plain reading of this story, I think we could all see just how stunningly beautiful this scene is. I mean, this man is paralyzed. He's helpless. He's lying on a stretcher. He's just been carried by his four friends. Something I want us to think about here is that this paralyzed man would have no way of getting to Jesus if it wasn't for those four friends. And we have no idea how far these four friends carried their friend. I mean, when you look at verse 45... Uh, of chapter 1, the last verse, it says, as a result, Jesus could no longer even enter a town openly, but he had to stay outside in, in lonely places, desert places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Or if you also just piece uh, Matthew's gospel, because he can be just a little bit more descriptive, uh, Matthew says this in Matthew chapter 4, I believe I have that on PowerPoint, It says, news about Jesus spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed Jesus. And so we have no idea. I mean, the, the... These four friends could have carried uh, this paralyzed man all the way from Syria, possibly even the Decapolis, or even if it is a nearby village, we're still talking miles. And then think about when they finally get to Capernaum, and and they probably ask, is Jesus here? And they get the news, yeah, Jesus is here. Where is he? Uh, He's over in, in Peter's house. And then they get to the house, and this is where the archaeology is, is, is very helpful. It helps us imagine the scene because living arrangements uh, in this world are, are very different than the way uh, we do living arrangements today. Uh, first, families then, uh, which were called households, uh, started with grandma and grandpa and included aunts, uncles, and cousins and could be as many as 150 people uh, living in what we would call the same house. Now, houses in those days were called insula. And let me just show you, you an insula. Insulas are all centered around the courtyard with then uh, rooms built around it. So uh, here you can just see those are two houses, uh, one next to the other, and you can see uh, the rooms around a big courtyard. So when it says that these paralyzed, these four friends carrying their paralyzed friend couldn't get to Jesus because so many people were there and and even the door is being blocked, it's not door into the rooms, it's door into, into the courtyard. 
and they can't get to Jesus. Hey, man, we tried. <laughs> we did about all we could. There's just too many people here. Maybe it's time to go home. No, these guys have grit. They have this faith that, that pushes them into the really hard things. They have a faith that allows them to persevere through the hard. <laughs> Brother, we're going to get you to Jesus. We're not leaving until we find a way to get you to him. Now, my family, uh, my middle-born son, Bennett, came up with this phrase, uh, came up with this years ago when he was entering high school, winners find a way. <laughs> winners find a way. And this, over time, evolved into, find a way, kid. Find a way, kid. That's, that's what he even said to me this summer uh, when I was kind of tired, blown out, uh, and things like that. He'd say, find a way, kid. Um, I don't know, maybe what comes around goes around, right? <laughs> Jews have a word for this. It's called chutzpah. Chutzpah is this aggressive persistence. It's this stop-at-nothing perseverance. In fact, if you want to know what faith is to a Jew, it's, it, it, it's very unlike what we think of faith. We oftentimes think of faith as those things, those propositions that we believe in. But to a Jew, faith is chutzpah. It's not just propositions that I put in my brain that, that, that my mind ascends to, but it's this, it's this undoubted, Dying persistence. It's, I'm not going to give up. It's, it's Abraham walking Isaac to, to Moriah. It's Joseph who, through pits in prison, stays true to God. It's David, little David, running at Goliath. It's Job, after he loses everything, saying to God, God, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. It's these four friends carrying their paralyzed friend and, and really stopping at nothing. Hey, even if we have to dig and scratch and claw our way uh, through this roof, we're going to do it. Does your life ooze this kind of faith? How I long to have this kind of faith that oozes this kind of grit, this kind of chutzpah, this kind of passion, perseverance, this not giving up, even faith in the impossible. And don't think that this is just faith in faith itself. This is faith that, that has its sights on something very specific. It has one end in mind, and that end is Jesus. It's chutzpah for Jesus. It's passion for Jesus. It's grit and perseverance for Jesus. It's faith that Jesus, in spite of all odds, can do the impossible. 
And I've always dreamed then, too, of being a, being a part of a church like this. A bunch of ordinary, less than ordinary people. A bunch of underdogs who have this kind of grit, who are willing to punch a hole through the wall just to get to Jesus. And will stop at absolutely nothing to get hurting, wounded people to Jesus. And guess what? I get to be a part of a church like that. The grit in this place is at levels it's never been. It's a gift. And imagine if we just continued to become this family who, who love God so much and, and this community of friends who love each other so much that, that we seek out the wounded and we do whatever we can, even if we have to carry them to get them to Jesus. And I love this. Look at verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Did you catch that? When Jesus sees their faith, whose faith? The faith of this man's friends. <laughs> I thought about this a lot this week because this actually should shatter our Western individualistic ways of looking at our faith. Whether you know it or not, we live in a highly individualistic world that makes everything about me, everything about you as an individual. In fact, Western spirituality then is this personal and private thing. It's all about God and me, me and God. But whether you know this or not right now, God is not looking down right now on me. He's not looking down on you. God is looking down right now on us. He sees a people. He sees one temple. He sees one family. He sees one body. I mean, think about our body right now. When, when a part of our body is, is hurt or it's injured, how, how the rest of the body... Uh, feels that hurt and how it compensates for that hurt and then floods uh, that part of the body that's injured with its resources to heal. We don't even know from this story if this paralyzed man had faith. Jesus doesn't mention it, but Jesus isn't looking at him. He's looking at them and he sees their faith, their collective faith. And I really want this to shatter um, our hyper-individualistic God and me, me and God notions of faith. Because right now, if, if your faith is such a me thing, such a personal thing, a private thing, that it's divorced from other people, that it's divorced from other uh, believers, good chance you are also divorced from the very presence of God in the power of God. Because God's word says that you, not you singular, but you plural, you are the temple of God. God lives in his temple, and I as an individual, you as an individual are not that temple. We collectively 
are the temple of God. God lives in us. Are you in God's temple? Do you belong to God's temple? Do you even know the people of God's temple? Do you have these kind of friends? Friends who unashamedly point you to Jesus. Friends who will stand in the gap. Friends who will do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus. I'll say this to everybody, but especially the young people. Young people, your choice of friends is probably the biggest choice that you'll make in life. Starting with if you ever get married, because that will be your best friend. Are you this kind of friend? Who are you carrying right now? Who's on your shoulders? Because I've, I, I've lived in church where, where long enough where I, where I can make a statement like the one I'm going to make. If you're not carrying someone right now, I can promise you that when it's, it's time for you to be carried, there will be no one to carry you. The people in this place who get carried by the people of this place are people who pour themselves into the people of this place. Now, this story just makes me love Jesus more. Because I stand up and I teach. And I have to say, like, you guys are funny. (laughs) I know you guys get to see things that I don't see in me that are funny. Uh, But when I'm up here, I I have two minds. The first mind, of course, is like, what am I going to say next? But the second mind is like, that guy back there is very distracted. This person over here is sleeping. Uh, This little boy down here is stinking, picking his nose right now. I see it all, okay? Um, (laughs) But this situation for Jesus is literally a speaker's nightmare. Remember one Sunday early on in the game when we used to have the doors open to just kind of keep it cool during the summer and in flies a bird. And I mean, literally, I have to preach while this bird is flying back and forth everywhere. And everybody's like this. And Think about this. Above Jesus are four people scratching and clawing to get through a roof made of sticks and mud. I can even see the dirt falling on Jesus' head as he's teaching. I don't see Jesus getting upset. I don't see Jesus even being frustrated. I see him smiling. This is, Jesus loves this. Because, in fact, I bet as Jesus is teaching I bet he is just constantly pointing to the racket that is going on above him because he knows that people from just looking and watching and witnessing that, they are hearing a thousand sermons. Even sermons by Jesus that could never speak about what faith is 
from what those four people are demonstrating. And I can even hear Jesus starting to switch his sermon a little bit, saying, you know, unless you have the faith of a mustard seed, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Eventually, the, the, the roof is, is, the hole is big enough, the man is lowered before, before Jesus, and he's laid at Jesus' feet. And you can just feel the drama now building. And Jesus speaks into this drama, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, Jesus, what did you just say? Did Jesus just say what I, what I thought he said? Yes. Jesus just told this paralyzed man, your greatest problem, son, is not your physical suffering. It's not those legs that don't work. Your greatest problem is your sin. Now, here's where I want to be careful because so much of Christianity today is, is really just Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy, which taught that the physical material world doesn't matter, that all that matters is the soul, and that salvation is ex- escaping our physical bodies in this material world for a spiritual world uh, called heaven. Uh, by the way, that is not biblical. Uh, that is Greek philosophy. Because the God of the, of the Bible made the whole world, both the material world and the spiritual world, just like he created both our spiritual self and our, our material, physical self. And God deeply cares about both the material and the spiritual. And the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is the good news that God is going to redeem both. both. Jesus is going to redeem not just our soul, but he's also going to redeem our body, which is why Jesus heals his body in the story, and which why in the future you and I will all get new bodies. But as much as the body needs to be healed, the biggest need in our life is for our heart to be healed. It's for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to God. I mean, we're going to see this throughout Mark's gospel. God has diagnosed the world's problem. And according to God in his scriptures, the world's problem is is not lack of education. It's not biology and the forces of evolution. It's not sociology and the forces of our environment. It's not politics and electing the right people. Our problem isn't even Satan as great as that might be. From cover to cover, God's word teaches that sin is the world's greatest problem. That's why without going too much further into next week's text, but in verse uh, 17, Jesus said, uh, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners because it's the sick who need a doctor. And what is sin? (laughs) Sin is this destructive force that has infected our world, namely the human heart. 
and it destroys whatever it touches. It destroys life. It, is, it destroys one, one's character and personality. It destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys friendships. Sin perverts the truth. Sin sours. It sours the soul. It sours people. It takes all the sweetness out of life. And I think one of the reasons why so many people uh, today want to make light of sin is because of their view of sin. They just see sin as, as breaking a few rules. Sin is far deeper than that. Sin violates. Sin violates the goodness and the beauty of God's creation. Have you ever been violated? Three weeks ago, I woke up, got ready, went outside of the garage. My car's not there. My daughter's home from college, so I think, oh, wow, she didn't come home last night. <laughs> Mine starts racing. Run up to her bedroom. She's sleeping. Where's my car? To make a long story so short, my daughter parked the car, left the keys in the car, left the garage door up, and my car was stolen that night. Right on my garage. I felt violated. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had something stolen. I mean, I, I mean, I still don't have it. They found it, and now it's all just getting cleaned up, fixed up, uh, all of that. Um, they found it in some parking lot. Um, it's actually happening quite a bit lately. Think about how we've been made. Every person has been made, according to Psalm 8, just a little less than God himself, crowned with glory and honor. Sin violates that image of God that is within us, the glory and the honor that he has crowned us with. Sin violates others and the glory and honor that God has crowned them with. Sin violates his creation, its beauty, and all its glory. I mean, our sickness right now is, is so much more than a body that gets disease and dies. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard is right. He says we are all infected with this sickness unto death. It's a sickness that diminishes us. It's a sickness that makes us but a shell of, of, of what God made us to be. And that sickness, says Kierkegaard, is sin. And the remedy for sin is not just a, a simple change in behavior or the turning over of a new leaf and, and following a new set of rules. The, the remedy for sin is we need a new heart. I mean, the Bible says out of the heart flow all the issues of life. Jesus is going to talk about this later in Mark's gospel. He, he's going to talk about all the unclean that's in our world. And, and he's going to say the source of all unclean is the human heart. It all flows from the human heart. Uh, Jeremiah 17 says the heart is desperately, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Here's the promise of God. That is, he is going to bring dead things to life and restore a broken world and, 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 and bring new creation to, to a created order that's gone awry. It all starts with what he says in Ezekiel 36. The remedy for all of this, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. The greatest miracle that God will ever do in your life is to heal your heart. In fact, I think if this paralyzed man could be with us today, he would say, oh, we traveled so many miles to get to Jesus, and, and what I wanted was for him to heal my legs. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't even know. I didn't even know what my greatest problem was. Has God healed your heart? One of my favorite characters in the Chronicles of Narnia is this uh, character called Eustace Clarence Scrub. I mean, his name says it all. Who has a name Eustace Clarence Scrub? Um, well, it's someone who's a selfish brat, know-it-all. Uh, and th and this, th this kid is somehow thrust into the world of Narnia comes across this, this dragon cave that's filled with all these treasure, treasure chests of gold and jewels. And of course, his greedy, selfish heart is overtaken with this treasure. And uh, he sleeps that night on a pile of gold coins, just still further manifesting all that's in his heart, the greed, the selfishness. And he wakes up the next morning, only to discover that he has become a dragon. Because his outer self now reflects the condition of his heart. And he tries desperately to just shed himself of this dragon skin. He goes into this pool of water and he bays and he bays, trying so hard to just wash this dragon skin off of his body. And while he's doing it, along comes Aslan, the great Lion King. And Aslan says to him, he says, I can heal you but you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid because I looked at his claws. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and I let him do it. He said, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. And there I was, smooth and soft, like a boy. Jesus has claws. And his claw needs to go all the way into our hearts. He needs to cut through all the pride, the pretentiousness. He needs to cut through the false selves that we've created, our image, all of our hypocrisy. He needs to undress our layers of self-protection, self-sufficiency, self-absorption, self-importance. All the dragon skin needs to be removed, and only Jesus can do it. And I love what Eustace says. 
his claw went all the way to my heart. And I became a boy again. Has Jesus done this for you? Is he doing it to you right now? In verses 9 through 12, Jesus asked the question, what's easier? <laughs> what's easier? Is it, is it easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat, rise, and walk? It made me think this week of, of maybe the hardest thing that anyone did in the Bible uh, on this side of God. And, and, and my mind, of course, went to Abraham when God asked Abraham to offer up the son whom he loved. I mean, I can't think of anything more difficult than that. And then I started to think that, that maybe one of the reasons why, why God put this in, in the narrative, why, why God asked Abraham to do this to answer the question that Jesus now asked what is easier, to forgive sins or to rise up and walk? Because God has just said about Jesus, this is my son whom I love. And my son is more than a miracle worker. He is the savior of the world. He came to the world to cure our hearts. And the way he will do it, he will be laid on an altar so that by his wounds, we will be healed. We will be cured from sin. What's easier? To say, son, take up your mat and walk. Or to say, son, your sins are forgiven. The hardest thing God has ever had to do is forgive sins. And look at how eager Jesus is to offer this forgiveness, this mercy, this grace. I mean, there's no formula. There, there's no thing that this paralytic has to perform to get Jesus' forgiveness. In fact, th those eyes that, that see right into the hearts actually see right through the hearts of these religious leaders. Uh, in fact, look at verse 7 where, it's, where it talks about this. Uh, they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forsake? forgive sins but God and immediately Jesus knew in his spirit uh, what what they were thinking and what was in their hearts so he said to them why are you thinking such things I mean, Jesus could see right into their hearts and those same eyes can see right into the heart of this paralytic he knows he knows what this paralytic's heart is yearning for, probably even more than the paralytic himself. He knows what this heart needs the most. He knows what this heart is asking. And Jesus responds to that heart by saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Do you know this, Jesus? A Jesus who, who's so eager to offer mercy and grace. I mean, think about the parable of the prodigal. I mean, the, the, the son hardly does anything, and the father is running to him and pouncing on him and lavishing him with grace and mercy before the son even repents. 
And the father doesn't love the son because the son repents. The boy repents because he's so, so loved by the father. And this is the heart of God. This is the heart of Christ. They're so aggressive to offer us their grace and their mercy. Have you heard God say to you, son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. I can promise you everyone that was there that day was amazed. The text says it. I mean, just watching this roof being cut through, then watching this helpless, paralyzed man being lowered before Jesus, and then hearing Jesus declare to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And oh, just... Just so you know that I have the authority to forgive your sins, let me also look at you and say, take up your mat, rise, and walk out. And everybody there that day, watch this man. Take up his mat, stand up, and walk through that crowd. A changed man from the inside out. But I'll tell you what's even more amazing than this story is what people witnessed a few years later when Jesus made good on this promise, when he becomes like this paralyzed man, unable to move his arms and legs, pinned to a cross, bearing this man's sin, dying in this man's place, dying so that this man could dance. He was wounded so that he could be healed. Jesus was violated in every way so that he could be made whole. And in our text, Jesus says the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And as I already mentioned, Son of Man is the highest messianic title there, title there is. It comes from Daniel 7. It's this mysterious one who's knighted by God himself to have authority over all things forever and ever And think about how this authority comes to us, how it comes to the world <laughs> through a cross. And right now, some of you wish that God would say to you, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Well, well, he has. All you have to do is look at the cross because the cross is God's claw. It's the claw that cuts its, its way all the way to our heart. It's the claw that cures us. It changes our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. And the way he does it, it's not by just hammering that stone. He melts it with his love, mercy, and grace. And last week, Peter said these words to Jesus. He said, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. And this is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. But like that day, while many saw him and were amazed, only a few found him. Only a few found the cure. The leper did last week. The paralyzed man does this week. And the kingdom of God broke in and out of their lives. Have you found him? Have you gotten to him? 
has his cure come into your life? Do you need Jesus to heal you? Do you need Jesus to touch you? Maybe God is whispering to you today, you need more than my touch. You need my claw. And humble yourself. Humble yourself like this paralyzed man. And just admit, I need help. Simply admit that, that, that without Jesus, I'm just as helpless as this lame man. I remind myself every day of this. Every day I remind myself of my great, great need for my, for my Savior. Because I don't feel this, this deep, deep need for him. I'm never going to have that chutzpah, the grit, the persistence to get to him. And we need more than just to get to Jesus. We need to place our life in Jesus' hands. Knowing that he has a claw, a claw that wants to cut all the way down to our hearts. And I get this. This can be scary. It can be a scary thing to put your, your, your life in the hands of Jesus and, and, and let that claw just cut through all of your dragon skin, whatever it is, all those things that you hide behind, your image, your, your pretense, the things that you find security, satisfaction, things that tell you or make you think that you're meaningful. But I want us to know his claws is kindness. It's his grace. It's his compassion. It's the cross. And that claw will cut all the way down and rip out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. If you haven't had this happen to you, get to him. Get to him. Find a way. God, this morning, you're looking at us, and I pray, God, in this, in this room that you would see great hunger and thirst for you. I pray that you would see people who don't take themselves too seriously. God, I pray you'd see desperation. God, I pray that you'd see people whose eyes are fixed on you. Not just intellectually, God, but that our lives, that, that we're running to you. That we're pointing others to you. Carrying people to you. Jesus, as we turn to you, may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come to our lives. May your kingdom come to our marriages, to our relationships. May it come to this church. God, may your kingdom come to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.